I am thrilled with today's guest, uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin from the 8th District of uh, um, Maryland. Recently, by the way, reelected with 80% of the vote. He is an American hero. Um, he was the lead impeachment manager in the Senate trial during the second impeachment of Trump. He's one of seven Democrats appointed to the United States House Select Committee on January 6th. Um, he was recently, he's been, uh, was elected as the ranking member of the House Oversight Committee. His book is a must read for everybody. Unthinkable Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy, which, uh, we're going to get into. Thank you for being here. I've, I've been a big fan for years. This is the first time we're meeting. Donnie, it's great to meet you. Thank you for your kind words, and thank you for reading my book. It means a lot to me. Uh, it is. Uh, there was so much I didn't know, and I was blown away. First of all, for our viewers at home, because the, uh, for our listeners at home, I want, I'm going to just paint the picture here, because you see, obviously, the congressman on TV in his suit, and he's got a baseball hat on backwards. He's in a sweatshirt, and it's just so great to see one of our leaders as they are just hanging out. As, the, as they say in Us Magazine, they're just like the rest of us. Well, I, I will deny that. I am in a suit and tie, and uh, I, I look as businesslike as ever. <laughs> first, first of all, how are you feeling? I know you were recently diagnosed with lymphoma. You, you fought colon cancer over 10 years ago. How are you feeling? Um, I was telling my wife this morning, I think I need to get a new health insurance policy that specializes in cancer. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm hanging tough. I started my, my uh, chemo treatment. Uh, and I tolerated it very, very well over the last um, several weeks. There's going to be six rounds of it, so I finished the first round. But I was able to go to work every day, and you know, I was able to deal with uh, 15 ballots uh, and um, for the the speakership. And um, I've been uh, mixing it up with uh, my friends across the aisle about uh, Hunter Biden and you know, everything. So basically I'm hanging tough and, uh, you know, I think the chemo could get more serious, but luckily, you know, that's what colleagues are for. And I've got friends who will, uh, stand with me and if they need to, you know, take my place here or there, they will. But so far I've not missed any votes or any meetings. You know, during the, it was interesting during McCarthy hearings, we C-SPAN had the, uh, cameras pointed at, at the chambers and we, we got to see the interactions. How much is, going on behind the scenes that we don't see you guys. It was just to, to just see Matt Gates and AOC with each other. And, and just, it, it was, there was something uh, oddly, weirdly reassuring about it, that these are at the end of the day, still human beings interacting with each other. Although across the aisle has never been as disparate as it is. What, what goes on behind as the sausage is being made? Is there a, it, after the lights go on, is there still a camaraderie there that we don't know about or I'm living in a fantasy land and it just doesn't exist? Well, yeah, it, it is just regular human conflict and interaction, but even more so, uh, you know, it's intense. Um, I I like to think that um, that, you know, the politicians all have something in common, which is we're all politicians you know, and no matter how ideological and polemical it gets, everybody still has to try to get their constituents, their social security pay and their Medicare and their IRS refunds and their PPP loans. And, you know, if you're taking your job seriously, there, there's a lot we actually have in common in terms of what we do. Um, but, um, you know, thing things under Trump got very deranged, I would say, and very polarized. 
Um, and we haven't gotten through that yet. Um, as we saw during the whole speakership sweepstakes. Um, sweepstakes. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> like the extreme right-wing faction of the Freedom Caucus was basically driving the train. And the Republicans have such a narrow margin with just four votes. And one of them is George Santos. Um, that now McCarthy is completely at the mercy of this fanatical right-wing faction. Isn't that great news for the Democrats? You know, as long as this this extremist faction holds sway over the party, they are unelectable. I mean, we, we saw, many of them are at least, we, we saw obviously what happened in the midterms, and that this, this prison cell that they live in and they're self-inflicted, I want to let, let it continue. It just, it, it just keeps the Democrats in power. Well, there's an identity crisis in the Republican Party because they, they literally have no agenda at this point. In the 2020 Republican convention, they, they had a platform committee that met and they couldn't agree to anything. Um, and they came out and they said, well, we don't have a platform in 2020, which tells you their platform is whatever Donald Trump tells them it is. Um, but that's not anything that's predictable or has any theoretical structure to it. Right. So they just do whatever Donald Trump tells them. That has a greater affinity to a religious cult than it does yes. to yeah. a, a mass political party. So you're right. I think that that's a recipe for political victory for us, that they're so crazed if we can stay unified as we've been and focused on delivering real results to people. I mean, I don't know what it means for the country. I I hope that um, that there would be a new party that replaces them that would be yeah. a more viable competitor to the Democratic Party, really, because it's it's not a healthy arrangement we've got. You mentioned Trump. Obviously, he still has a grip, not nearly uh, the vice grip that he had. Uh, we've seen is, is waning power, yet he does still control whether it's 20%, 25%, 27% of the 30% of the party, uh, how does that grip ever get completely unhinged, uh, uh, un, untightened? And is what I always thought, well, losing is going to, they're going to have to go through a few losing cycles. They've gone through a few losing cycles. And you still see in recent surveys that 60, 70% of the party still wants them to uh, curtsy to Trump, so to speak. What, what changes that for them? Because as long as that exists, they are a broken party as long as or is it just the next one will take over and this is the face, the 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 uh, metaphorical face of the party for, for the going future. Yeah, but I don't think there's really any way out for them at this point when the Republican senators used to talk to me during the uh, impeachment trial in the Senate. I told them you need to vote to convict because of the facts in the law and the Constitution in the country. But if none of that means anything to you, you got to do it for your own party because he will destroy your party before it's all over. And I think we're seeing that happen. Um, but, you know, a lot of people in the Republican Party, maybe even a majority, recognize what a corrosive and indigestible force he really is for most of the American people at this point. Um, but he still exerts a powerful stranglehold over large segments of the Republican Party in lots of states and lots of districts. And um, he will not, you know, go quietly into the night ever. I mean, no. if it looks like somebody's actually going to beat him, he would bolt and say, 
I'm going to create my own part. Hundred percent. That's the way this plays out. You know, with Santos, I, I spoke to a fundraiser for Santos who said, "I'm not for Santos. Santos, another winner for DeSantis, that he's not afraid of him in a, a primary. He's more afraid of him in a general election because if he beats him, he's just, to your point, he's going. To, Trump's going to take my toys and I'm going to destroy you. I don't care. I'll give it to the Democrats. I want to look forward before we go back, and there's so much to talk about. You, the panel uh, voted. Um, uh, charges on obstruction of official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to make false statement, and conspiracy to defraud the U.S. by assisting, aiding, and comforting those involved in insurrection. Of course, the last one is the most severe. You've said that you 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 really feel strongly that Jack Smith and, and Merrick Garland and the Justice Department will indict Trump. Well, I think, um, you know, I don't know all of the various Department of Justice charging criteria that they will factor in and how they'll assimilate all of that. But I, I will tell you that if it's a question of just applying the law to the facts of what happened, um, it's already happened in hundreds of cases yes. who have been prosecuted for and convicted for interfering with a federal proceeding. That was the whole point of Trump's plan. Stop the steal means go in and shut down the joint session of Congress where we were counting electoral college votes. So that seems like a very straightforward application of uh, a charge relating to conspiracy to interfere with a federal proceeding, just like defrauding the the American government, the American people by substituting a fraudulent counterfeit election for a real election, which was the whole point of the fake electors and trying to get uh, Pence to step outside of his constitutional role and, uh, you know, so-called return electoral college votes to the states as if he had the power single-handedly just to vaporize the votes of millions of people in different states. So I think that we set forth what we thought were the very clear statutory violations. I mean, did he aid and abet insurrectionists? Absolutely, he did. Did he aid and comfort Absolutely, he did. I mean, what does it mean in the middle of this insurrectionary violence where his own vice president is on the run and Trump tweets out uh, that Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what needed to be done? And then finally, when the tide turns and more law enforcement reinforcements come in and then Trump reads the writing on the wall, at that point, he says, well, I, I, I love you. You're very special, but everybody go home now. We don't want to play it in the hands of these people. I mean, come on. Uh, he was aiding, he was abetting, he was inciting, and he was giving aid and comfort to, um, certainly throughout the day on January 6th. And uh, I, I would argue before, um, in, you know, in the days and weeks leading up to the assault. Let's, let's go back to the days leading up to it, the days right after, because there is no human on this planet that felt tragedy more, the combination of being there and the combination of your personal loss. It's kind of the essence of the book, the confluence of those two events. Talk to me about the days, le your personal days leading up to January 6th, January 6th and afterwards, because I don't think the average viewer, even the, the very the, the very in-the-know MSNBC type viewers, know what you went through. I didn't. Well, nobody really knows what other people are going through in general, you know, but um, uh, 
um, these were absolutely the worst days of our lives. We lost our beautiful son, Tommy Raskin, on the last day of the year in 2020. Um, he was a, then a student at Harvard Law School, and he was a poet, and he was a philosopher, and he was just a dazzling young man with a perfect heart. Um, he was a huge champion of human rights and animal rights and welfare. He was a vegan, um, but he was struggling with depression and um, the conditions of COVID-19 uh, just, I think, overcame him. And um, he was somebody who felt all of the pain and injustice in the world. Um, and um, he took his life on that last day of the year. Um, and so, yeah, in my book, I tell Tommy's story, or at least a small part of Tommy's story of what he was going through, what happened. Um, and, you know, the amazing person that the world lost when that year ended. Um, but um, then I talk about what happened exactly a week later on January 6th, where that was the first day that I went back to work, basically, because I, I had to, because, you know, um, this is when we were counting, receiving electoral college votes, and uh, it's a constitutional responsibility. And I had also been asked by Speaker Pelosi um, a month before to prepare responses to the anticipated objections to the receipt of electoral college votes from Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, the states that the GOP was targeting um, and that Trump was targeting. And so to review all of the cases coming out of those states, because of course the courts had been rejecting all of these claims um, to be prepared to answer them and then also to be prepared to you know speak on the floor for the Democrats about it. And um, so I decided to go forward with it. Um, there were people in my family, like our youngest daughter, Tabitha, telling me not to go in, but I said, why don't you guys come with me and you can be with me. And so Tabitha chose to come and my son-in-law, Hank, who had recently eloped um, with our oldest daughter, Hannah, um, he decided to come too. And that's how they ended up being they were there. there. January 6th, they were there. They were there. I, they, there were not very many kids there. Uh, we were under COVID uh, conditions, but because of what we had just been through, we we had Tommy's burial service on January 5th, the day before. Um, so we were just reeling and in shock. Uh, and... Um, so anyway, uh, <clears throat> they came and they were there and they ended up getting caught in a room off of uh, the Capitol with my chief of staff and uh, hiding under a desk and barricading themselves in the room as the, the mob pounded on the doors uh, while, and I couldn't get back to them. We were evacuated off of the house floor, but then we were reunited several agonizing hours later um, when when we got them back and I, so um, 
yeah and so that was you know we we'd lost tommy on wednesday the last day of uh 2020 and then a week later was january 6 2021 and a week after that we speaker pelosi asked me to lead the impeachment team uh to try the case in uh the senate a week after that joe biden was sworn in and i don't know if you remember but there was still a lot of concern that we might suffer another violent attack that the extremist groups might try to come back again you know at, at the inaugural um and um and then it was two weeks after that that um uh we went to trial uh in the senate and then that ended up in february 13th so the book that i wrote and um you know i was uh buffeted by events and um really kind of in a state of shock but the the book that i wrote through months of insomnia um was an attempt to try to make some sense of everything that had just happened with tommy and with the violent assault on the country and the impeachment trial and um you know and that that became my you know my book and you know i was getting thousands and thousands of letters from people all over the country and um you know, I'm a politician who's like been traditionally compulsive about answering everybody's letter. And I was just too overwhelming, just emotionally and logistically. But I, I kind of thought that the book would serve the function of responding to people and explaining to people. I want to talk a little, a little bit more about Tommy. I, I, you know, I've never said this before anywhere, but I've had bouts of depression. Um, and I don't think the average, per, not the average, I hate that word average. I, I, so many people, they see the word. And they don't understand it. Talk to me about Tommy's life because he was such an exceptional young man. I, I, I never met him, but just reading about him and it, it, it just, and that yet you live with those other demons. And as a dad, and I'm a dad also, talk to me about that. Talk to help educate, for lack of a better word, people out there. Well, I mean, Tommy, Tommy just had a dazzling mind. Uh, and, and I say a perfect heart because he had, this absolutely boundless love of people and of animals um and he was a very fun loving uh person he also had a real philosophical cast of mind and from a very young age would uh disappear into his room and he would go and he would write little philosophical essays about things he was thinking about and you know, came upon very early, like essential problems in philosophy, like the mind body problem. And he would think about them and he would, you know, struggle with them. Um, in college, he was at Amherst College, he um, was diagnosed with depression. Um, and, um, and it was complicated in his case by um obsessive compulsive thoughts very often the two are linked together yes yes yeah and and that was i think the part that became such a danger for him because you know suicidal thoughts can become compulsive and obsessive and their you know recurrence and so um, it's a little too hard for me to, to speak in much more detail, but I, I tried to be pretty painstaking about it in the book as much as I could reconstruct 
everything that happened. Um, but Tommy, you know, you wouldn't have known it. And many of my friends were shocked um, because he was the person who so many of them turned to for help um, and for wisdom and for insight. Um, and, uh, but it was too much. I mean, he, he left a note for us, uh, which said, please forgive me my illness one today. Look after each other, the animals and the global poor for me, all my love, Tommy. Um, and he, he gave all of his love and his struggle against depression. Um, and, um, you know, we think about him all the time, of course, and miss him sharply. How do you, there was a book I read years ago, I don't know if you read it, by a rabbi, and you're Jewish, I'm Jewish, and when, when bad things happen to good people. Um, how do you, you, you're a person that, you, you, you talked about Tommy's heart, and obviously one of the hugely decent, wonderful human beings. You've dedicated your life to public service and giving. How do you, as a spiritually, where do you put that? How do you process that? How do you say there's a God? And, and what, what, what with, with the time that's passed, and as you said, this is something that you live with every day, obviously. Where do you, where do you put that? Well, that there's a difference between misfortune and injustice, you know, um, and misfortune is you know you are born with a gene that predisposes you towards depression or it could be any you know and every family deals with these things um they're part of life um and um you know injustice is social it's when you know somebody's diagnosed with depression or cancer or diabetes and they can't get the appropriate health care because they're too poor or in the old days they they were gay and they couldn't marry their partner and yeah. like that's the injustice you know and um in politics we've got the opportunity to reduce injustice as much as possible and then to help people alleviate the misfortunes of existence as much as we can. Um, you know, but it's, you know, but it's, um, it's in the nature of life that we all have to deal with these things. Right. And, um, you know, um, I was rereading this, essay by Susan Sontag um, about how everybody is born with dual citizenship, a passport to the land of the well and the healthy and a passport to the land of the sick and the unwell. And we'd like to just use one passport in our lives, but in truth, everybody's going to use both passports. So I think it is a, a sign of basic, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> civic solidarity certainly from a, a democratic party point of view that we want to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to be treated for whatever they've got 
um, and that we don't make illness of any kind, mental, physical, emotional, the mark of some kind of stigma or moral failing, but we accept it as part of, as part of life. How do you, going forward, if I said, uh, Congressman, okay, your, your role, your purpose in life for the next 5, 10, 20 years, the, the two seminal events in this book, how have they shaped you going forward as far as your, as you see your personal mission right now? Well, I mean, Tommy was somebody who uh, loved freedom and democracy a lot. Uh, he was named after Tom Paine, and there was a lot of Tom Paine in him. I mean, Tom Paine was a radical, small-D Democrat, you know, um, who, uh, you know, believed very much in the possibilities and the potentialities of human society. And I think Tommy did that. He was very skeptical of state power and corporate power. Um, but um, he he had... Um, he had a profound love of human freedom and being able to the idea of being able to re, to distribute freedom to all human beings, you know? And um, so that's a spirit that I know I can carry on for him and with him. I share it with him. Um, I, you know, I think the events of January 6th catalyzed in me the sense that um it's a real question whether uh, democracy is going to survive through the 21st century. I mean, the autocratic states and movements, the the Putins and the Orbans and General Xi and Marcos and uh, El Sisi and Egypt and Erdogan and Turkey, all of them are on the march and they're all working together to try to undermine and overthrow the democracies and democratic freedom. And there's a struggle in every country in the world as authoritarian right-wing politics comes to democratic societies like our society, you know, or in Germany, there are, there's an authoritarian right-wing movement in Israel, the authoritarian right-wingers have taken over. So I, I mean, history plays tricks on us all, and we don't always end up doing the things we thought we'd be doing with our lives and, um, you know, even with our political careers. But I I feel like I'm in the right place at the right time to continue to put up a really strong fight uh, with the majority of the American people and democratic forces around the world to defend democratic freedom and constitutional democracy. Uh, so... That that is a, you know, that is an ongoing struggle, and I am profoundly committed to to being part of it. Um, when I ran for Congress back in 2016, and I got elected the same night Donald Trump got elected president, um, I basically been running to try to focus on um, climate change and. Um, realigning nationwide priorities to be focused on climate action and to galvanize the world. Um, but that obviously was skipping a step because we're not going to be able to save humanity from climate change if we can't save democracy. Because the theocrats, 
in Iran, in Saudi Arabia, in the autocrats, in Russia, in China, and the plutocrats in Mar-a-Lago are not going to deal with climate change for us. Like that is going to have to be the work of democratic movements and parties. So we got to save democracy, strengthen democracy in order to really follow through and um, confront the climate crisis and save our species. Congressman, it's been a honor and privilege to talk to you. Thank you for sharing opening up. I know uh, every time that those it, it, it's got to be so difficult for you. Uh, thank you for all the service you do for us. Keep up the great work, and I believe the good guys are going to always win in the end. I appreciate your time, my friend. <clears throat> well, I appreciate that, Donnie. Thank you for having me, and you keep up your great work, too. Thank you, my friend. Stay well.